While the fate of Barney's and other struggling department stores continue to hang in uncertainty, Nordstrom has just opened a massive New York flagship. Meanwhile, Tiffany & Co. just received a most interesting proposal from LVMH. And this just in. The battle for grocery blazes on. Amazon has turned up the heat by offering free grocery delivery for its Prime members. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, November 4th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Our guests today include Charlie Cole and Shep Hyken. Charlie is the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer at Samsonite and the Chief Digital Officer Active Advisor at Toomey. Prior to his current role, Charlie's experience spans an eclectic mix of startups from corporate to venture-based and private equity. Shep is a customer experience expert and the Chief Amazement Officer of Shepard Presentations. He's also a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author and has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. Charlie Shep, thank you both for joining the rundown today. Hey, great to be here, Charlie. It's nice to virtually meet you. Likewise, Shep. Good to be here and uh, should be fun. Excellent. So we're going over three retailers that are in the news this week. The first one, of course, you could probably guess is Amazon. So they're heating up the competition. And just last week, they slashed its Amazon Fresh grocery delivery subscription, which was previously 15 a month for Prime members, down to zero. So that's a pretty sweet deal. Prime members can now order free two-hour grocery delivery. There's a small caveat, though, if you're a Prime member, you can only use the service if you've previously paid for the Amazon Fresh subscription. So the rest of us, myself included, have to go and request an invitation, at least at this time. So Amazon is challenging Walmart with their grocery delivery subscription, which they rolled out this year for $98 annually. Kroger also launched their delivery service uh, last year. And then we all know Target acquired Ship to offer same-day delivery. So a lot is going on in this space. At this point, it seems like Amazon Amazon's more willing to burn money if it means reducing its uh, costs for customers and winning more slices in the proverbial market share pie. So Shep, I want to pass this to you. Considering all of the factors and the lack of infrastructure, do you agree that this subscription model won't be sustainable for Amazon? On the contrary, I think Amazon has figured out that it will be sustainable. One of the things that Jeff Bezos has done from the very, very beginning is sacrificed margin in favor of a better experience for the customer. Now, I don't think they're going to lose money. That reminds me of the old saying, you know, the radio announcer, we lose money on every sale, but we make up for it in volume. (laughs) That's not going to work. But I do believe sacrificing margin has always been a strategy for Amazon, and uh, they're not sacrificing it down to zero or to a loss. But I think it's important to recognize what's happening is we have entered into the era of convenience. And a big part of convenience is delivering. What all of these retailers are figuring out is customers love to have things delivered to them so they don't have to leave their homes, leave their offices, whatever. And I also want to point out that, you know, while there has been a fee involved in the past, even if it's reduced down to nothing, don't think that it's free shipping or free delivery because it's not. It's being paid for somehow, some way. There might be an extra few cents added to items across the board. I don't know how they're going to make up for it, but they will figure out a way to do so. I think they're uniquely positioned to, even if they do lose money, and and I haven't done the unit economics analysis or anything like that. I know that also in the news, they kind of took a beating on their stock price because they've been taking much more costs involved on their operation side. But Amazon's uniquely positioned to absorb this because their fastest growing business segment is advertising. 
And so if this leads to an influx of consumers, even if the consumers themselves are unprofitable on a unit economic basis, you got to keep in mind that the, this has also been part of Amazon's strategy, which is basically use retail and grocery and whatever it may be as a loss leader. You know, mm-hmm. use it to build your brand so you can sell cloud storage. Use it so you can build your brand to sell advertising. And ultimately, that's what's gotten them in a little bit of hot water. I think it's more like tepid water politically at this point. But I think that they, even to Chef's point, even if they're break even or close to it, they can absorb a little bit of a loss because it can fuel a much more profitable part of their business. Yeah. Good comment. Charlie, that's why you're the high paid executive over at the company you work for. Very smart. (laughs) Exactly. I love that. And as Shep said, you're paying for it elsewhere, probably as a consumer, the increased prices of the items. And then like Charlie said, the loss leader approach has worked for them before. And I guess that's an interesting way to look at it because they're not going after creating more prime members. They're going after, like you said, their fastest growing segment, which is advertising. And actually, I think that they'd love to increase their prime member base, but I believe the goal being, what can we offer prime members that will make them want to re-up every single year? Mm-hmm. And that's the key. They don't want to lose it. Years ago, not that many years ago, Jeff Bezos was asked, are people really willing to pay this kind of money? And back in the early part of Prime, I think it might have been a 20 or $25 membership. And they got you free two-day shipping on things that you would buy from Amazon. And now it's expanded to much more than that. And they asked, you know, like, you know, you're giving away all the movies, you're, you know, all the TV shows on the Amazon Prime video. And his concept was, we need to create such value for the customer that they keep saying this now, what is it? hundred? It's more than 99. It's 129 now. I should know. I pay it. I don't really care about how much it costs because I know I'm getting so much more value in return for what it is. But that's what he's doing and his company is doing is they're delivering value at multiple levels in multiple ways. I have a question for you, Shep. And and Julie, I'd love to know your thoughts on this as well. Do you think that this push into advertising, and it's always very highly mentioned in their earnings reports, do you think there's a chance that that advertising can dilute that value? I mean, I think what we're ultimately talking about is this counterbalance between a consumer's willingness to give data if they're shown value back, but advertising tends to cause some dilution of that promise. I mean, you think about Facebook has certainly got a lot more heat as they started doing advertising. They used to be this loved service and now they're almost demonized. I'd love to know, Shep, if you think that there is a risk of that or if they're somehow insulated from it. Well, nobody's insulated from it. I believe there's definitely a risk, but let's take a look at the history books. All you have to do is say, okay, what's the best case study on this? Let's look at Facebook. That's what we don't want to do. So what can we do that is congruent, that meets the needs of the customer. And and if there's one thing that Amazon has done, and granted, with all the AI, you go on to just the Amazon website, it says, welcome back, uses your name. Last time you were here, you looked at this. I don't think any customer thinks that's creepy, okay? What's creepy is when the ads start popping up when you don't expect them for things that you said that you may not even need. And, And I think the mistakes that were made are, and it's not so much even Facebook, but there's been retailers you know, it's like if I decide, hey, I'm going to go buy a baby gift for somebody, all of a sudden I'm on the list of being the pregnant mother, and I'm not the pregnant mother. I'm the friend of a pregnant mother who I bought a gift for. So, you know, you're marketing and advertising the wrong ways. But we, we as a general in retail, are getting so much more sophisticated at this. There is a line, and I think companies need to understand where that line is and not cross it. 
I'm really hoping that Amazon is one of those companies. I believe they are. I'm a huge fan of theirs. A lot of things have been said, a lot more good than bad, but even the bad, I question like, what is there jealousy? Is there anger? Are you upset with somebody for being that successful? But I think they do write so many different ways. I would just add in there, you know, Alibaba is obviously a huge competitor. And I, I know that from conversations with people and things I've read online that it they tend to share more data back with their advertisers than Amazon. So it will be interesting to see how Amazon deals with maybe some pressure moving forward when it comes to sharing its data. And they are getting a lot of it, that is for sure. Great. Most of you have probably heard that Nordstrom just opened their flagship in New York City just last week. So they're exploring small formats to now as big as can be with this new location in Central Park on 57th and Broadway. It's 320,000 square feet. It's huge. It houses seven floors and it has retail and entertainment venues within. So it also has like lavish features. They have a Nike boutique. They have coach customization shop, several restaurants, and get this, a full bar in their shoe department. And that is something I can get on board with. (laughs) A bar in the shoe department. A full bar. Mm -hmm. Full bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not just beer and wine where where it's no second rate establishment. I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Uh, Are they going to charge for these drinks? You know, that I do not know. I will have to look into that. But yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I have never seen this before. So really exciting. And they actually opened um, a few other smaller local hubs in the Upper East Side Village just last month. So they're doing a lot. But one thing I'm wondering is because they have so many department stores, even Nordstrom itself has had to downsize in recent years. Does it make sense, Charlie, for them to add a flagship of this astronomical size? Is this logical for them? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of layers to that question. So look, the fact we're talking about it shows that there is some kind of a marketing halo effect. The fact they chose probably the highest rent district in the United States, not the world, but in the United States, shows that they hopefully did some math on the confidence of it. But I think the challenges are going to be like, so number one, as we talked about Amazon, one of the things Amazon did so well is just change the rules on inventory. Because they had mm-hmm. such a large part of their business that was marketplace-based, the cash flow and the cash constraints and the payment terms and all that sort of stuff kind of went out the window. And, and the reality is Nordstrom is perpetuating that problem. If you're going to have a 320,000 square foot store, you got to have stuff in it. You got to have stuff to sell. You got to have people to sell it. And this concept of people don't buy stuff, they buy experiences has become such an overused cliche that in order to actually accomplish that promise, you have to go so far above and beyond, right? So we're talking about bars and stores and personalization and stuff like that. I think that all of this just perpetuates this problem, which is you can't just win as a department store with your merchandising point of view, right? It used to be you'd go to Colette in Paris because you could buy stuff that you couldn't find anywhere else. And you go to Isatan in Tokyo because you'd buy stuff because you couldn't find anything else. I think we can all agree finding stuff is the easy part. As we talked about Amazon, we talked about AI, we talked about Google, quote unquote, organizing the world's information. It's pretty easy to find stuff to buy at this point. And so the challenge for Nordstrom becomes, how do they make 320,000 square feet of differentiation in experiences? And I think it's a tall task. I'm not a brick and mortar expert. Uh, just like I referenced before, I haven't done the math. If I had to guess, their rent on that place is eight figures, mid eight figures a year. So they're going to have to do some serious profit coming out of there. But I really wonder, can they survive with the unit economics of a department store model, meaning inventory and people against the unit economics of a marketplace model, which allows for people like Amazon and others 
to pay for all those other services that allow for those experiences to be differentiated, to allow for one-hour delivery, to allow for complete ubiquity of selection. That's the challenge that department stores really have, is not just the constraints of the 320,000 square feet of physical space, it's the realities of an inventory and person-based business model. So I'm going to go with Julia to give you a straight answer. I'm skeptical, but I've certainly been wrong before. And who knows? Maybe if it doesn't work out, WeWork will buy this building too. Who knows? <laughs> oh, WeWork. <laughs> we had to talk about WeWork. That's great. Yeah, we Weren't they the one that bought in. the old Lord and Taylor building or something like that? I'm pretty sure they were. I mean, they're popping up everywhere, taking in big mall space. Yeah, but so I don't know, Chef. I mean, when I listen to your love of Amazon and all of our love of Amazon as a consumer, I'm not sure 320,000 square foot retail space helps Nordstrom accomplish this, which is what layers my skepticism on it. I mean, what's your take? Well, so first of all, Nordstrom has not had a great presence in New York City as such. And I think this is a great opportunity for them to do so. And they did it in such a way, it's like, go big or go home. Well, they went really, really big. So let's take a look at some of the expensive real estate in shopping, whether it be Bell Harbor shops down in uh, Miami, Florida area, which I think at one point, if they aren't still, were some of is the most expensive real estate for retailer. You look at some of the shops that are in Las Vegas in some of these like Caesars Forum Mall, very, very expensive. You have to wonder, are they making money? And the answer to that is, in those particular locations, they may not be. I hate to use that word loss leader. I don't think anything should be a, a loss leader, but I take a look at what advertising costs are. And I think we need to take a look at what benefit in visual, the experience, and all the press and the hype that goes into a store like this, which by the way, I predict this is just the first of many stories you're going to hear about that Nordstrom location. We're already talking about the bar. What else are they going to have? at that store. I mean, are they going to start selling Peloton bikes and actually have Peloton classes and aerobics classes and yoga classes to sell the equipment? We're going to see a pretty, I think, innovative department store that's going to maybe even redefine what retail department stores are all about. So that's one comment. The other comment is we have to take a look at the retailers that are expanding. I don't remember all my numbers, but I wrote an article recently in Forbes that basically said retail is not dead. It's only dead to the ones that are lousy at it. And I'm not suggesting that some of these long-term, you know, well-known names are really lousy at it, but they're not changing and adapting to what's needed in the marketplace. And uh, I believe Nordstrom's been very, very effective. They've done some small stores uh, in testing different types of concepts. Obviously, this is huge, but I think retailer, if you look at Amazon's getting into brick and mortar, Target's expanding, Lululemon's expanding. What are they doing different than the other retailers? Somebody figures that out and they can go and they can join that same bandwagon. Mm -hmm. And I just have a question for you, Shep, real quick, because I know Charlie said you're a little bit skeptical because they're going to have that perpetual inventory problem. And just given the cost of rent at this location is astronomical. But Shep, you said they're going to probably have a lot of a marketing play here. Do you think that is going to drive the foot traffic? Is this going to become kind of like a tourist location? Wouldn't that be nice? But look what happened to FAO Schwartz. Wasn't that for many years a tourist location? I don't know how much money they did or didn't make in their toy store, but eventually it's like we can't afford to keep it going. But there were other issues that plagued them. I think uh, it's a destination, no doubt. And in prime, I mean, I can't wait. 57th and Broadway, I know exactly where it is. I know where I'm going the next time in New York City. But to get to your point, if you're not constantly redefining what you do, and maybe constantly doesn't mean we're going to see a change every month or maybe even every year, but I think it's going to be happening 
on a more regular basis than it's happening before because we need to speed up the ability to keep up. Boy, that's a tweetable line, isn't it? We need to speed up the ability to keep up with the way the changes of what our customers' expectations are. And they're being changed because there are some rock star brands out there that are teaching our customers what great service, what great experience, what a great retail experience is all about. And there's a trend that you referenced briefly, Julia, and specifically in this Nordstrom that I fundamentally believe in. And that is, there's sort of like this, we're stronger together mentality between brands and department stores, or let's just say brands and multi-brand retailers. And the place I think typifies it the best, if you guys have not seen the Foot Locker in Washington Heights, where Nike basically took it over. You walk in, it's a Foot Locker store, but inside is a bunch of custom localized Nike experiences. And so think about like the symbiosis Mm. where Foot Locker gets to basically hedge its bets and feature its star brands. And who knows, maybe Nike pays rent in that store. Nike certainly is doing some custom things such as the Washington Heights store has like shoe collaborations from local artists done weekly. They have this genie concept where you go in and push a button and you enter to buy some of these limited edition shoes. I think that is a trend where, as Chef said, really smart brands are going to say, okay, look, for, well, for years and years and years, brands have basically said, like, our retail stores need to be the absolute bastion of our brand. That's true. But now what? Right? So now the customers are still going to Nordstrom and still going to Foot Locker. And even though they've been put under strain on Amazon, that's an opportunity because what are these amazing experiences you can enable regardless of the real estate your consumer happens to be walking through? And so I think that trend of you referenced coach customization store, I think that if you have a chance to go to the Foot Locker in Washington Heights, it's such a cool localized experience where a brand has to embrace a culture first, as opposed to just pushing its brand through regardless of what it feels like the channel is. I think that that kind of idea of reinventing the shop and shop, if you will, is going to stick and it's going to force brands to be a lot more thoughtful about how they do it. Absolutely. And I love the local flair that's involved in that store because I think that probably really drives the emotional connection that customers feel. Anytime you can do local well, that's the thing. The national brand is headed. I believe and I know I'm jumping off a little bit of a tangent here, but I believe that a local brand who understands how to do local well can have a competitive edge against a big box store or a big brand that comes in. And I use Ace Hardware as an example, even though it's a recognized brand actually internationally, they're all locally owned dealerships. They're all locally owned stores that compete against much larger big box store competition. You've got a little... Ace Hardware that's 15,000 square feet versus, you know, the Home Depot that's 100,000 square feet that outspends in advertising 30 to 1. And uh, just recently, I was asked this question, can a large retailer do local well? What they do is they go to the local community. They bring in the local artist, if you will. They get involved with a cause that's locally focused and not nationally focused, and they start to attract a little bit more of that local crowd. Might be tough though for Nordstrom to do that just because of the nature of that area having huge foot in tourism. That's a difference though. If you look at Nordstrom specifically and you get that particular store and what they've just done is created that flagship, mm-hmm. it's all about you're in New York, it's big and it's international. And uh, you're right, probably the concept of local isn't as important there, but the concept of experience is even more important if they want that foot trap. Mm -hmm. And like Charlie said, just rethinking a little bit the shop and shop concept and how it's executed. 
Well, we're going to hop to the last and final retailer in today's rundown. If you think about really old brands, uh, this one is 182 years old. So if you take a wild gander, you might guess Tiffany & Co. And they soon might be saying, I do. They have been offered by Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior parent company, LVMH, to buy the brand for $14.5 billion. So yeah, that's a... Uh, that's a big move. Um, it's an all-cash bid, and it, it values the jeweler at about $120 a share and was 22% more than the October 25th closing price. So interesting to see what Tiffany will decide. Shep, do you think this is a fair valuation for Tiffany's, and do you see any risks associated with the potential acquisition, or is this the right move? Wow. I mean, I, now you're. I'm putting my analyst cap on. <laughs> so I feel like I should be on that show. Booyah. <laughs> so, you know, I think that they're definitely paying a premium price for this. I'm wondering, are they trying to bring the Tiffany brand into their stores? Or are they trying to bring their amazing products that they sell on all the different into a Tiffany store? So in other words, if I walk in, am I going to even see a Tiffany store? And is that important? I don't know. So the Louis Vuitton brand, there's more than 75 different brands associated with that company. And adding Tiffany, I mean, that's an icon that stands on its own. I wonder if they're going to dilute the Tiffany name by bringing it in to all these other luxury brands. So I'm going to go to Charlie and say, Charlie, what do you think? Well, yeah, the analyst hat is a fun one to put on, Shiva. They have about call it a billion dollars in EBIT a year as it stands, right? So if you start to think about it really just logically, if they change nothing, just kept the business as it is, the investment would pay for itself in about 15 years. But if we've seen LV do this stuff in the past, it's for one of two or three reasons. But foremost, it's, hey, let's penetrate a sector that we really have struggled to do. And the luxury jewelry sector or diamond sector, whatever you want to call, it's really under siege. You know, it started with, the Blue Niles of the world, sort of disrupting the distribution concept. And now you're seeing lab-grown diamonds kind of have a much more sustainable angle, which really resonates with a younger audience. And so I kind of think LV sees an opportunity for a category under disruption. Why not have the biggest name in the space to lead it, right? And so I kind of like it. I kind of think that LV is well-positioned in the luxury marketplace. I think that's not the most revolutionary statement you're going to hear today. But more importantly, they see a category, which I'm just broadly saying luxury jewelry or jewelry or diamonds or whatever you want to call it. They see a category that's in flux. And so if you have an opportunity to kind of get the leader in that space and then embrace that change, much like everything we've talked about, the consumer expectation is changing and will continue to change. And if you are the category leader as a brand, you have the opportunity to drive that change as opposed to follow it. And I think that might be what LB is thinking about here. And Look, I mean, Tiffany traded at about 140 a year ago. So is the valuation fair? I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not a financial analyst, but I like the idea strategically behind it if, if they're doing what I think they're doing. And I think it, they're paying a 20% premium from the closing price from what just a few days or a week ago. I don't think that's an unreasonable premium to pay. I agree. I mean, look, at, look at what the market's been doing. And we're talking, we're talking market price which isn't necessarily the true value of what the company is. But if you just look at what's based on the stock price, I think that's a small premium to pay. When you look at other companies that are getting multiples on top of that number. So, and it's always based on sales multiples. But I think when you take a look at, you know, we're also making an assumption 
but we're hoping, and by the way, I hope this to be true too, uh, is that the market continues to do well. One of the things is if you look at the brand and you look at Tiffany, I'd like to think that stock prices are based on their the fact that the company is a good company, a solid company that returns a good ROI on any investment. You mentioned the company WeWorks, Charlie. There is a great example of how can the price be that high for a company that doesn't make money, that loses that much money every year. So riddle me that one, Batman. The last thing I'll say on the, uh, the LV side, Tiffany & Co., when you look at their revenue, it is disproportionately the Americas and Asia uh, with a massive, massive chunk in Japan, right? And so what does that mean? I mean, where is LV the strongest? You would probably argue Europe and China along mm -hmm. with those two markets. So I think there is some very tactical stuff behind the scenes that makes this make a heck of a lot of sense. And, and if you can make Tiffany the number one luxury destination and unsafe Bulgari in Europe, and just really kind of drive this luxury movement with China, which is happening quite naturally. And there's obviously an appetite for kind of US and European brands. I think tactically, they have a huge amount of expansion that can be done across Europe and China in particular as well. So I like this one. And Jeff, if we can figure out how people keep on getting valuations at multiple billions of dollars <laughs> with never having made a dollar of profit, I, I think we can make a really profitable business together if we can answer that one. Hey, you know what? And you and I are going to be partners real soon on that one. There we go. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I love that. Great points. Expansion into Europe and China. I could definitely see that happening. They have a great brand portfolio. This would be complimentary for them. So the interesting thing will be to see, you know, as Shep said, how they'll handle the brand uh, and hopefully not dilute it with the changes they'll need to make to adapt to the disruption like Blue Nile and other companies that Charlie mentioned. So great points. Okay, well, that wraps us up. So Charlie and Shep, thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank the you. Yeah, really great fun. to be here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Shep. We'll stay in touch. See you guys. Alrighty. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.